Um, today, this is kind of an interesting text for today because Paul just takes on the simple task of uh, dismantling the entire Roman household, uh, which is exciting. So let's uh, dive in together. I'm going to pray, and then I'll read, and we'll get going. Lord, thanks for your presence here. Thanks for being with us. We ask for your wisdom and strength right here for us, um, whether at home or here in the room. We just um, know we need you desperately. And we ask, Father, for the courage today to do the self-examination necessary um, for the work that you want to do in us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start reading. I'm actually going to pick up in the last verse of where Rick left off last week to kind of then ramp up into this week. So uh, Colossians 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Just want to pause here and say happy Mother's Day. Um, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This passage is such a, such a strange passage um, uh, for, for a number of reasons, one of them being... Uh, the, the, what a weird household mix. Uh, often, uh, in the first century, households would be comprised of three generations. Grandparents or in-laws, right? Then the parents, and then the kids. Um, and then, sure, the broader household would be comprised of servants and slaves. You know, there would be, there'd be kind of a broader mix here. But Paul kind of addresses three, uh, fam- three relationships. He addresses um, husbands and wives, then he addresses parents and kids, and then particularly fathers and kids, and then spends the most of the passage talking to slaves, and then masters. So as relationships go, there's kind of like three pairings. There's, there's the married couple, the husband and the wife, then there's the parents and the kids, and there's the slaves and the master. And as, as I was reading this, I just, I, it, that just kept striking me. This is such a strange group of people to address. Rather than addressing, like he does elsewhere, elder men, younger men, elder women, younger women. Why, why the focus on the master and the slave? And so I did a little bit of research, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of a dive here into some philosophy and some history, because these would have been the things that are rattling around in the minds of the Colossians as they had heard this. And that would then affect their perception of the text. Does that make sense? Now, here we are, 2,000 years removed from the text, and we don't have those same things rattling around in our heads. And so when we read this text, it doesn't impact us the same way it would have impacted them. Does that all make sense? Okay, so 
Uh, you guys have heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Morons. No, it's just a quick Princess Bride shout out. Um, uh, Pre-Princess Bride fame, uh, those three uh, were uh, Greek philosophers of great renown. And uh, they each had their magnum opuses that they would write these massive diatribes about how they would structure society. Um, Socrates never wrote anything down, but his disciple Plato did. Um, and Plato recorded um, Socrates' thinking about the ideal utopia in a book called The Republic. And then Plato had his own thoughts that he built and developed off of. And then Aristotle did his own uh, thoughts as well. And it was really interesting. Aristotle has this massive work called Politics. And in politics, what he's trying to do is he's trying to form a perfect society, a utopia. What would that look like if, if everything would come together? And a big thing in Aristotelian thinking is purpose, is the telos, the end, the goal. And for Aristotle, the telos was happiness. That's what you were after, is we're chasing happiness. So let's build a society then that structures itself in a way that pursues happiness. Does that make sense? Does that sound like any other nation we know? Okay, let's keep going. Um, and so I just want to read a couple of quotes from Aristotle's work, Politics. It says this, The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts... Oh, sorry, hold on. Let me rewind a little bit. I, I cut down the quote. Aristotle wants to study a nation-state. And he wants a nation-state to be happy and to pursue happiness. Okay. And so what he does, he says, let's break it down, the nation state, which is this massive monolith, down to its smallest components, study those components, and then we can start from the foundation and build up and understand a perfect nation state. Does that make sense? So he goes from the nation down to the city, from the city down to the village, from the village down to the household. And this is where we pick up in politics today, the work politics. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts, and the primary and smallest parts of the household are, listen to this, master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of these three relationships. I mean that of mastership, that of marriage, and thirdly, that of the progenitive relationship. This was written 300 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. This was the kind of format that the Roman household was structured on. Isn't that interesting? Three sets of relationships. Let's keep going. Now, Aristotle, for Aristotle, the center of the household is the property-owning male. He says, we need a utopia. I have such a solution for you guys. <laughs> you would not believe we're going to make the property-owning male the center of the universe. We're going to make them the center of each household. And then, truly then, we will find happiness. He says this. Um, yeah. He says this. For it is a part of the household science to rule over wife and children. The rule of the father over the children is that of a king. We need, we need, listen, people. If I was preaching from Aristotle, I would say we need men at the center of every household. We need men to be kings in their homes. 
if a man's home is his castle, mine is an estrogen keep. <laughs> there, are, there are so many women in my house. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, if things aren't getting bleak enough for you as, a, as disciples of Aristotle, it gets worse. He says, he says this, There is also a department which some people consider the same as household management, and others the most important part of it, and the true position of it, which we have to consider. I mean, what is called the art of getting wealth. So if the telos of society is happiness, the way we're going to get there is we're going to get there by building households centered around these many kings over their own many kingdoms that rule over their wives and their children and their slaves with an iron fist because that is the most efficient way to get money. This is Aristotle's view and the Roman view of what the household ought to be. And these views were widely disseminated throughout the Roman Empire. This is what people thought about the household. And this is how households were structured. And often, culture informs how we structure our households, sometimes even more than the scriptures do. There's a friend of mine named Tim who was invited to preach at a pastor's conference in India. Um, and he went to the pastor's conference, and he was going to, I think he had a whole, like, two-day series thing he was going to do on First Corinthians. Um, and he went there, and the, one of the leaders that was there was like, hey, can you uh, tell these pastors not to beat their wives? He said, I'm sorry? He said, can you explain from the scriptures why husbands shouldn't beat their wives? He said, this is a room full of pastors, right? He said, yeah. He said, it's just what you do in, in this culture. And no one has told them. Can you please? And so he did. I mean, talk about like changing your talking points. In the middle of him sharing, I mean, these pastors are convicted by the Spirit and are getting up, leaping out of their chairs, running out of the room, calling their wives and begging for forgiveness. Their hearts are broken in repentance. Now, what's interesting about this household that Aristotle is proposing is as far as its purpose and mission, it sounds very similar to an American household to me. We're going to pursue happiness. And the way we do that is by getting more money. Okay. So that's what's rattling around in the Colossian head. When then Paul steps in and he says, he says these words. So, uh, I'm going to start again. This is kind of how Rick ended last week, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is what we're going to do. Do everything for the Lord. And then he goes into this conversation about the household. And remember, he addresses Aristotle's three relationships. Husband-wife, uh, parents and kids, and master and slave. And he turns the whole thing upside down. He turns the whole thing on its head. And he says this, wives. This is shocking that he is addressing wives as equal parties and members of the church. Aristotle does not address wives at all. It was not the way. It was not the way of Hellenism. It was not the way of Rome. And Paul addresses them, which is beautiful. 
And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I know this is the elephant in the room, and no one's going to listen to anything else I say until we deal with this. So let me just talk about this for a moment. Um, Okay, number one, the word submit does not mean obey in Greek. It just doesn't. The word obey is later. It's used for kids and slaves. It does not mean obey. Secondly, um, when it says wives submit to your husbands, does this mean that husbands should not also submit to their wives? (laughs) Jeff, I see you nodding. (laughs) Bold move on Mother's Day. Bold, bold move. It's a man, that that nod was done with the confidence of a man with a comfy couch. (laughs) Oh, and a lot of love towards his wife, all right. (laughs) Um, I mean, let's look at the next verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Does this mean because... Husbands are addressed here that it's okay for wives not to love their husbands and wives to be harsh with them? No. This is a relationship. There's give and there's take. There's, I can't even tell you the amount of times every day I submit to my wife. It goes like this. Hey, Daniel, can you go uh, pick something out for the girls to wear? I go, oh, I mean, I can try. <laughs> what do you think, you know? And that's like the smallest thing. There's mutual submission. There's give and there's take. Now, I think there's reasons why Paul tells wives specifically to submit, and there's reasons why Paul tells husbands specifically to love their wives, but that's not the main message of today's text. If we were in Ephesians, I'd go there. We're not in Ephesians. I think Paul is getting after something deeper here, and I want to go after that deeper message, and I don't want to get lost on this word submit. Does that make sense? And just for clarification, I heard one of my favorite definitions of the word submit uh, three weeks ago from our very own Rick Vogt, and I want to read it to you. I don't even think he wrote this down. I think it was just off the top of his head. He said this, and when I say submit, I don't mean we relinquish all of our own thoughts, and it's not that we relinquish our own choice, but we bring it into cooperation with God and one another. It's not that we become doormats or completely passive, but we seek harmony between who I am and what I want and believe and who you are and believe and who Christ is. And Christ is the one we are all wanting to become like, and so we work with each other. Does that sound fair? Okay. If you want to talk about this more, I'm happy to talk about this more. Let's set up coffee. Or if you want to email me, my email is rick at orchards.church. Okay. Here's the main point, and we actually come to it pretty quickly in the text. Again, look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then the verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Does it say children, obey your parents because they said so? No, although that is an excellent reason sometimes. <laughs> it is the last resort. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Actually, at the men's lunch, we talked about this, about ways fathers can provoke and discourage their kids and the effects that can linger in that for years. Man. 
Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Then four one, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You also have a Lord. Seven times in this passage, Jesus is mentioned. Seven times. And the plea is, submit every aspect of your household, of your work, to the Lord. Every aspect to Jesus. Sometimes I wish we would translate the word, I I mean, I don't even know how we would do it differently. The word um, Lord is kyrios in Greek. It means the king. It means the the Lord, the king. When we use the word Lord, we think of God always, which is fine. We've, we've conjoined those two words together, but it's, it's kingship. He's the king, and we follow the rule of the king. He is our king. In your relationship with your husband, in your relationship with your wife, submit it to the king. And act in that relationship as you would for the king, in a way that is pleasing the king. Where do we, I mean... The people that you spend the most time with are your coworkers and your family. That's 95% of our life. And so Paul in 17 says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he goes into all of life. It says, in your household, every relationship, submit it to Jesus' lordship. Every single relationship. At work, everything you do at work, submit it to Jesus' lordship. Everything. Absolutely Everything. Yeah. Now we don't yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't have slaves, but we do have employees, we do have bosses. We have unjust bosses. We have rude employees. And Jesus says or Jesus Paul says, submit this to Jesus. Verse 22, bond servants or employees, right? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Don't just do it to make your boss happy. They're your earthly masters, right? But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Everything you do, work heartily for the Lord. Everything you do, work heartily for the Lord. Now, here's a problem that I come across as I think about this, doing everything for the Lord. Is too often I run on autopilot. Where not everything I do is actually for the Lord. And I had a really, like, a come-to-Jesus moment yesterday uh, during our day of service, which is amazing. Um, I get really pumped up about those things. I get very excited about them. I had forgotten it was, ha- well, so last week, I really missed you guys, by the way. I was on vacation last week visiting my brother in California. So while you guys were gathering, which was amazing, and I'm so sad I missed it, I was touring Alcatraz, which was amazing um, and much less joyous than this place. Um, yeah. But um, 
coming back here, I, I I had totally forgotten that this Saturday we were gathering, and so I came back, and I opened up my work email again, and I saw all the emails about neighbor to neighbor. Just this big, like, smile broke over my face. I was like, this is going to be so good. And I showed up yesterday, and it was so good. It was so, so good. And I had this moment. um, I was on uh, Rebecca's team. I had this moment where we were doing yard work, or we were weeding, um, and uh, I was very excited about weeding. I was just excited to be there and excited to do the weeding. And um, I talked about how much I hated gardening because I, I genuinely do hate gardening with such a passion. Uh, but I said, but when it's for Jesus, I love it because I do. When it's for Jesus, I love it. And in that moment, I found myself trapped by, believe it or not, a platonic, uh, not platonic like friendship but like plato-esque the philosopher uh dichotomy where i'm separating out the sec this the secular and the sacred where i'm going right now this gardening is for jesus because it's this big church day that we're all gathered together and we're all rolling up our sleeves and we're getting stuff done and today it's for jesus and so because today it's for jesus I'm going to be pumped about it. I have this, so you guys know what weeds are? Anyone shout out a definition of a weed? Anything growing where you don't want it. That's exactly right. So last year, Jill said, hey, Daniel, can you go weed the garden? And I said, I sure can. Watch this. I want all those plants there. Done. I, the garden is weeded. Um, it was so easy, and I left, and then I came back, and she had torn up my whole garden. Can you believe that? So frustrating. <laughs> I hate weeding. I hate it. And yesterday, I decided I would love it because I was doing it for Jesus. I decided Jesus gets one day of weeding a year. <laughs> and I think this is the problem that we come across every day in our lives is this, this massive divide between sacred and secular. And, and this is exactly... This is exactly what Paul is, is coming up against. This is exactly what Paul is writing against here. Is he saying all of life is sacred. Every moment is sacred. Every action is sacred. This is a time for you to love and to serve the Lord. This time, right now. Just everything you do, everything you do is sacred. Whether you're weeding, whether it's your own garden or someone else's garden. And I just, I, yeah, I think we do this with so many aspects of our lives. I do this with, man, yeah, I think we do this with God's mission like, we'll be missional people, we'll be missionaries when, it's, when there's like an event or we go on a trip maybe. Maybe we'll, yeah, maybe we'll be really good servants when it's a serve day for church. And the question is, what does it mean to move, move these things that are so precious and so perfect for our daily lives into the avenue and place of our daily lives? where suddenly we kick down this stupid wall that Plato built 
between the sacred and the secular, between the spiritual and the physical. We say everything matters. Everything matters. My relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids. Right here when it says fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. If you guys know my daughter Eden, she's just like a ball of joy and energy. And sometimes that ball gets destructive and crashes into things. And in those moments, how I respond to that can have two effects. One of them is, Dad, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And the other one, I just see this beautiful flower wilt. And I'm not proud of myself. What does it mean for me to invite Jesus into that moment? Say, Jesus, what, what is... What is acting like you're the king in my life right now? How does that affect how I'm parenting right now? And often, honestly, this is, this is the core. Part of the reason um, a friend of mine, when he, he's a pastor in town, when he had a kid, uh, he was super freaked out because he was like, pastor's kids can get so messed up and I'm a pastor. What, how do I make that not happen? Um, and he went and he talked to dozens of pastors in the city and said, what's the secret? And they said, be the same person on the stage as you are at home. And I think, I think that's really it, is at home, that's where we are who we really are. And neighbors will, you know, after someone does something horrible, neighbors go, you'd never know, seemed like a nice, you know, she seemed like a nice mom, and great neighbor, and you'd never know, and we hide all these things from the rest of the world, but it's so, hard to, it's so hard to hide who we really are when we're at work and when we're at home. And this is what Paul is addressing here, is who we are at home and who we are at work. And whatever we do to submit it to the lordship of Jesus. So we can't hide any of this from Jesus, nor do we want to hide it from Jesus. We want to submit every aspect of our lives to him, to his lordship, to his authority in our lives. And let me tell you guys, like, this life we have is so precious. And it's so short and it's so fleeting. What does it mean to genuinely take this into our hearts, this message into our hearts, and say, tomorrow, today, this afternoon, tonight, I'm going to submit every aspect of my life to Jesus. You believe there's one God? Good. Even demons believe and shudder. This is where our allegiance to the king comes into play every day. How are we being allegiant to the king? How are we bending the knee again daily to the king? How are we building a habit out of bending the knee? Yeah. You know, this last week I was... Uh, there's a couple of young guys from the church and we get together on Thursday afternoons and uh, we do a little Bible study together. And um, This last week we were in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to turn there briefly. I'm just going to read this. This is Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's, that's your king talking. 
do not resist the one who is evil. Okay? Just be totally frank with you guys. Resisting the evil people is like my number one reaction to evil is resistance. That's my first gut stop. Okay. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Has anyone like ever done this? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is our king talking. And this is jarring my American ears. This is jarring to me. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. But that's not just. There was a law in Israel that Roman soldiers could ask anyone to stop what they're doing and take their pack a mile. An occupying force. Not there justly. Not the people you want to follow and serve. When they ask you to do this thing that's totally legal for them to do, even though they're here unjustly, do it double. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I've never lent money out in my life. Ever. My parents have, plenty of times. I've never done it. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Church, love our enemies. I don't know who your enemies are. Maybe your enemies are a coworker. Maybe your enemy is a family member. Maybe your enemy is someone in politics, a political opponent. Love your enemies. Again, that's just not my first reaction. And the closer and closer I'm getting to Jesus, the closer, the more and more I'm seeing of my life that is not submitted directly to his lordship. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to build that habit. I'm wanting to build that. Where when I come up against someone evil, my reaction isn't resistance. My reaction is turning the other cheek. That sounds controversial to say, and I'm, I'm just quoting Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of our lives every moment here in Sherwood, 2021? What does that mean? Every aspect, every aspect. And I don't know all your lives in the detail that you know your lives. And I really genuinely believe the Spirit wants to speak to each one of us about areas of our lives that we're not submitting to his lordship. A relationship. A coworker, a boss, an employee. A marriage, a child. Every aspect of our lives submitted to his lordship. Now, as we do the submitting, guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, turn the other cheek, and then I will bless you. It just says, turn the other cheek. It doesn't say, go an extra mile, and then I will get rid of the Romans and the injustice from your land. 
It doesn't say that. It says go an extra mile. Sometimes we equate the outcome of our actions with what the right thing to do is. Well, what good will come of it? I think the good will happen in your heart as we continue to bend the knee again and again and again and again. To where bending the knee becomes our reality. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This world is not set up to be fair. Anyone who says differently is selling something. That's two. Okay. And if you greet only your brothers, wait, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Congratulations. Do you know who they found, what SEAL Team 6 found when they raided Osama bin Laden's house and killed him? Wives and kids. Wives and kids. Congratulations. You love your family? Well, that, so does Osama. We stand out because we love those who hate us. The way of Jesus is radical. It's not cute. It's not American. It's the way of Jesus. It calls us to be something so much more than we could ever be on our own. It calls us forward to a life of sacrifice to a king. It calls us forward to be employees and husbands and mothers and kids and bosses that are so far different from the world that it doesn't even make sense in the world. The only way this kind of living makes sense is with Jesus Christ as the king. That's it. That's it. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The, fu- the funny thing is here, remember how we began with Aristotle? Began with his telos, the end goal, the purpose. That's the Greek word here. You therefore must be telios as your heavenly father is telios. You must be mature, complete, perfect. He's our standard. Not the world, not the actions of other people. It doesn't matter what our coworker is doing. It doesn't matter what our like wife or husband is doing. It doesn't matter what our kids are doing. Our standard is the king. And we follow the king. He determines our actions, not the actions of other people. Does that make sense? We follow the king. We don't follow whatever. Well, we can do this because they're doing that. It's like it doesn't matter. We follow the king. But they're doing, what does Jesus do? Let's do that. Let's go. Let's be Jesus people. The impact, family, that our community can have as we surrender every aspect of our life to Jesus is unfathomable. Unfathomable. Because the plans of Jesus are so big. The heart of Jesus is so big. The heart for this city the heart for our homes, the heart for our workplaces is incredible. It's massive. Our problem is not our problem is not that we dream too big. Our problem is that our dreams are not big enough. 
we step, like that song we just sang, there is power that raised someone from the grave. There's resurrection power that can save. I was at a church called Westside for a long time, and there was this crazy two or three month period. Um, it started out, Rick I th- uh, is not here, not in the room right now. He, um, he and I were on the missional community team, and one of the exercises we had people do as they started new communities was to write down the names of impossible people, people that would never come to Jesus, and to start praying for them. Um, I saw this woman maybe a month later getting baptized, um, and she was um, someone's impossible name that she wrote down at the beginning of their community. Um, and she had stage four cancer and her head was shaved as she got baptized and God healed her from the stage four cancer. It's crazy. There were two other women within a three month period that were also healed of stage four cancer. It's just this weird three month period. I haven't seen anything like it since I'd never seen anything like it before too. Since then, I, I, a friend of ours passed away of stage four cancer from that church. And she loved Jesus and she, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We follow Jesus. That's what we do. I want to end um, by reading this passage in 1 Corinthians. Because it paints such a beautiful picture of what we get to look forward to. This is near the end of the book. Um, And he says this. And uh, if it's helpful for you to close your eyes to listen better, then go ahead and do that. I'm not going to put this up on the screen. Uh, But I want you to, to walk through these words with me and feel the impact of them. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you all a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of the coming day. What a beautiful picture of eternity. What a beautiful picture of what's going to happen. The hope that we have. And the very next verse says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
when we approach these situations, these difficult moments, we approach it with a view of eternity. We approach it with a lens that's 10,000 years down the road. And that changes how we act. That changes who we are because of who our king is. And so we can work hard for the Lord and submit every aspect of our lives to him. Amen.